Hey everyone, I'm excited today. Lynn and I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Lee Warren, who is a practicing brain surgeon, mm. which is the first we've had on the podcast. I love that. Um, yeah. He's also, yeah, <laughs> he's an award-winning author and his newest book is called Hope is the First Dose. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you a subtitle too, a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. Uh, Lynn and I both have not fully made it through, but have made it through enough to I to confidently be able to say that I think uh, he is the best writer that I've ever read of a nonfiction book in terms of gripping you, pulling you in. Um, really, really strong. Yes, I would not say this is a light read, but I would say it's an easy read. Like I, it, yeah, it's very easy to read, easy to understand, but. The emotions that it's pulling out of you. I mean, if I don't cry in this interview, it'll be a miracle. I'll just yeah. say that because I just started reading it, and yeah. it's it's really well done. So, so thank you okay. so let's, much let's for being introduce here. Him. So thank you for being here, Doctor Lee. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was the best book written by a neurosurgeon that you'd ever read. So. <laughs> that too, you win the award for that one. But no, but seriously, like I've you know I read a lot of nonfiction and. Uh, you know, and I think, yeah, you just have you have a gift yeah. for being able to tell a story and um, and do it really, really well. And so mm-hmm. it's hard to stop reading this book. Like literally, I I was trying to pull away from it, and I was just in the chapters are short, so I'm just going one to the next to the next. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's a great book. Um, anyone listening, if you've ever gone through anything and you have any tragedy, any trauma, like definitely get this book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, cannot recommend it enough. Thank but. Yeah. With all that, uh, I want to talk about, I mean, a lot of different things. And I'd love to, if you're okay with this, Dr. Lee, bounce around a diff- bunch of different directions. Of course. Because I think you have a depth and a breadth of breadth of uh, knowledge and wisdom yeah. that I'd love to just tap into and extract as much out as we can. So does that work for you? Absolutely. Great. Okay. So uh, our podcast, generally, we're talking about financial matters one way or the other. Um, you know as well as I do that there are a lot of people who have experienced massive financial challenges that have been traumatic in their life, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, I know someone who um, their business partner ran out with them and left them with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. <laughs> and, wow. like, it was all straddled to them. I mean, anyone who goes through a divorce, like, that's often a financial really challenging moment. You know, and there's a hundred other things we could list off here. But... Um, I'd love your perspective um, based on what you know and, uh, you know, everything you've learned about this, how some of speak to one of those people who's going through one of those moments right now. And um, what would you share with them? Well, I think the first thing is I came around to this idea of writing books and all of that because of some big things that we went through in our life. Um, mm-hmm. I have a wife and I've, I've been through a divorce in the past. I've been to the Iraq war as a combat surgeon and came home with PTSD and that kind of wrecked my life and, and, and all of that. So, so everything we say today is prefaced by saying that we're not three people sitting here saying we got it all figured out. Right. Um, I'm telling Definitely you, that I've been through some really hard stuff and, over the course of my 23 years as a neurosurgeon and all the stuff I went through, um, my first book I wrote about PTSD and what I saw in the war and how it affected me and all that. But, but I started noticing in my career 
problems that I couldn't fix with surgery. So people with malignant brain cancers, for example, that were going to die no matter what I did. There's certain types of brain cancer that you just don't survive. And so Mm -hmm. I started wondering and researching as a scientist and as a Christian, like, how can I help somebody if I can't fix them? Right. Because we all know there's a difference between outcome medically and outcome personally like you can have a really good high quality life that ends from a disease shorter than you wanted it to and it's still a good life or you can have a life where you survive everything that happens but you're miserable and wrecked and and hopeless and desperate even though you lived right so i started noticing all these things that people were going through and trying to figure out how to help them and as i was starting to write that which turned out to be my second book um that's when our son died. My, my son was stabbed to death uh, in 2013 at 19 years old. And, and so I'm sitting here literally writing a book about how to help people when they're going through their hardest things. And all of a sudden I'm going through my hardest thing. Yeah. Wow. And I can tell you way worse than getting blown up and mortared in Iraq and way worse than PTSD and way worse than divorce. Losing a child is like the worst thing that I've ever encountered. And, and so the the pre, this is a long preface to your question, Bob. But the, if somebody's going through some sort of really hard thing, the first thing I would say is, after having experienced a number of them, is it doesn't have to be a death or a diagnosis. Like the the thing that hits you the hardest in your life can be a financial loss. It can be the loss of a dream. Or it can be any sort of thing that creates an emotional wound in you. And that's why I subtitled the book, The Massive Things. So we talk about trauma. Everybody understands that. That's a car wreck or diagnosis or something. And tragedy would be when your kid drowns and you can't save them. There's something external to you, but that's equally devastating. And then there's just these massive things. The guy that steals all your money, right? Or you get yourself in debt and you can't figure out how to get out of it. And and I think one of the things we'll probably end up talking about here is that we were business owners. Lisa and I ran our practice in Alabama for 12 years, solo practice neurosurgery. So when you lose a child and you can't work all of a sudden your business is in peril right you mm-hmm. got 10 employees and are you going to make payroll or not so that's a massive thing and it's just as real yeah. on the emotional side as everything else so i would say the first thing is give yourself permission for whatever it is that's happening to you to create the same sort of neurotransmitter and emotional distress that other people's massive things are causing them even if yours doesn't look like theirs do because yeah. yours might be infidelity or financial issues or whatever and mine might be my son dying but they're both going to create the same set of emotional issues in our hearts that we have to deal with the same questions to our faith the same floor that drops out in our life all those things are equally true and so we need then to develop a plan for what we're going to do when that thing happens or if you're in the middle of it already like what are you going to do next and how do you move forward yeah okay so yeah, I mean, with that in mind, like, what what are those first steps? Um, yeah, like, the, again, whatever the situation is, like, what does someone do? Yeah, so I always kind of couch things in medical terms because I'm that's metaphors that I'm comfortable with, you know. So yeah. I, I, I write about self brain surgery and all these things that we talk about. But but the first thing is, in any time there's a there's a wound or an issue, the the first thing is first aid, right? Like stop the bleeding. Like so if you're mm-hmm. if you're hurting emotionally, the first thing you do is get yourself safe. Like get get around some people who are gonna help you. It's your church or your family or whatever. Get yourself in a situation where you're gonna be safe and put some pressure on that wound so you don't bleed out from it. And and what we see with emotional trauma sometimes is people treat it in the wrong way instead of instead of putting pressure on the wound they drink alcohol or they 
You know, mm-hmm. they get online and do stuff they ought not to do and gamble away all their money or whatever or mess up their marriage. So don't don't treat a bad feeling or a bad situation with a bad operation, right? So mm-hmm. don't do the wrong stuff that's going to hurt you just because it makes you feel numb or less painful in the moment. So the problem with numbing behaviors, and, and it happens all the time in business issues when we, we have excess stress and we treat it with something that we think is going to take our mind off of it, right? And that's alcohol or it's television or it's eating the wrong stuff or too much of something and what that does is it creates this this idea that i call a tomorrow tax like you wake up the next day and you have numbed yourself to this thing and you still feel it when the numb wears off and now you got another problem too right now you're more in debt or now you're hungover or now you've sent the text message in the middle of the night that you ought not to have sent and you get yourself Mm -hmm. fired or whatever so don't don't treat a bad feeling with a bad operation so the first thing is get yourself safe apply some principles that that are sound and are going to help you get back on your feet but give yourself time to let that initial part of the wound settle down enough before you start trying to figure out what you're going to do five years from now figure out how you're going to take the next breath right now yeah Yeah. i i have a quick like really practical question to follow up on that i i just read the part where you had said after your son had passed away so the you know, not to give anything away, but the very beginning of the book is talking about this traumatic event that happened with your son passing away. And, um, and then the following things that happened after that. Uh, but one of the things that you said in there, which struck me was that when you, you, you went to church, like the weekend after he had passed and your, you said it was just too much. And I'm curious how to identify those things. And if you would still, um, if you would still like looking back, wish that you would not have gone to church that week or, you know, whatever, how can you identify those things that are going to not feel like a safe place for you just because of the mental, emotional, whatever state that you're in? Does that make sense? That's a really good question. And I don't know that you can always know that, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. our family, we're people who go to church. That was our thing. And we all played we all play instruments and sing and we're in worship music and part of the band at church and all that, even our son was. And so for us, it was natural that everybody's in town. The whole family's there to go to the the ceremony, the the funeral. Um, And what are we going to do other than go to church? Right. But when, when we got there, it was, overwhelming like mm-hmm. and one of the reasons it was overwhelming was because of the behavior of some of the other people there and one, mm-hmm. one thing we learned is christians aren't sometimes very good at knowing what to say i don't think anybody is but but christians aren't very good at knowing what to say when somebody's going through their massive thing like one of the one of the worst things you can do for example is start quoting a lot of scripture or what you think might be scripture aimed at making the person feel better in the short term instead of just letting them know that you care. And so a really Mm -hmm. good example of that is when somebody loses a child or somebody dies, people often say things like, um, well, God must have needed another angel, you know, which sounds really nice. But the fact is it's terrible theology because people don't become angels when they die. It's not not true. It doesn't happen. And if it did happen, then it would mean that what you're saying to me is that the God who created the universe and who can literally create angels out of nothing 
took my son away from me so he could have another angel, and that would be horrible, right? Like, why would God do that? So that's it's not yeah. a good thing to say to somebody. And yeah. it's also not good to quote scriptures like Romans eight twenty eight, which says, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That mm-hmm. turns out to be a really good thing later. But right now, when somebody tells you, hey, yeah. God's going to make good out of this, and you're saying, how can God make good out of my son yeah. being stabbed to death? How can that be possible? It, it's not good. Don't tell me. It's, it makes you angry, right? So yeah. one of the things that happens when you go to – I'm not saying don't go to church. I'm saying if you put yourself in a certain position and it starts feeling unsafe or it starts feeling overwhelming, you have Dr. Warren's permission. You have permission to change that environment for yourself mm-hmm. and make it safer, right? So if, you, if you're if you in the, the acute phase of this injury, this massive thing you're going through, stop the bleeding. Get yourself in a safe place. And if it starts feeling bad – Go to a different place or talk to people and let them know how you're feeling. And most people care enough and want to be helpful. We just talk when we're uncomfortable, right? We say whatever pops into our mind because we're trying to help. And I found that the best thing that you can say to somebody when they're hurting is, hey, this is really hard and I'm sorry. That's that's the best thing you can say. Show up and and love on them, but don't necessarily think you've got to fill all the space with with words because sometimes the words are worse than the silence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and your daughter, I think it was your daughter that had a very different experience where it was like the next day after getting this terrible news and information, she was like, I have to go to church. I have to be around my people, right? Like it was a a different experience for her where she wanted the community, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for her, she needed that routine and those people and the and the group that she was familiar with and mm-hmm. and it worked for her to do that and and so like i said there's no right answer here yeah. um, just like there's no no one path through grief or through trauma everybody has a different experience of it whether yeah. it's financial or business or personal or, or medical or whatever your experience is going to be different than somebody else's and that's mm-hmm. why another one of those things that you ought not to say is i know how you feel because you really don't know how somebody else feels like like i don't know what it feels like for you to lose your son even though i've lost mine Mm-hmm. But I've, I can empathize and I can say, I'm really sorry. I know this is hard, but you don't really know how I feel, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. All right. Good. So how does, I mean, the book's called Hope is the First Dose. So can you connect those dots? Like how, where does hope come into this whole equation? And one of the chapters I think you wrote, you said um, hope is a verb, which yep. so often mm-hmm. we're, we think of it as a noun. And um, yeah, so... Connect those dots for us. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of ground between those dots, but I'll cover it yeah. quickly. So, so hope is a verb. I say that because the fact is we feel like we're either hopeful people or we're not. We're pessimistic or we're optimistic. And don't, so don't confuse optimism and hope, by the way. They're not the same thing. But, but, but people think that you're wired a certain way, and, and if you don't have that wiring, you're just not going to be hopeful. It's not true. turns out there's a, a repeatable method that you can use to generate a hopeful attitude that will help you start to see things in a more clear way. And that starts by understanding the neuroscience of how your brain works when you're injured or when you're wounded emotionally. And that is that your thoughts have a negative bias about five to one, like the about five to one of the things that pop into your head are 
wired negatively and understanding that you can begin to say that not all the thoughts that I think are true some of them are excessively negative just because they're they're wired out of my brain in a protective way and there's a long story behind that I did write about that but basically it's true that your brain tells you all kinds of things that don't turn out to be true when you're hurting you have a you know good example probably in your business world like you figure out you're in a big hole financially that you don't know if you can get out of or not what's the first thing you think I am really hosed there's no way out of this i need to pull the escape latch yeah. and declare bankruptcy i'm never going to be okay that you think those things and then if you're smart like you are y'all story is amazing and you say wait a minute people have gotten out of big trouble like this before there's probably some things i can do to try to start climbing out i'm going to put my pet on straight and i'm going to get after it and there's a way to get back to hope so hope turns out to be remembering you, there's all kinds of examples through the Bible too, but it's memory and movement. It's remembering that I've been in a hard situation before and God was faithful to help me get through it. Other people have been in similar situations and they didn't put a bullet in their head. They found a way out of it instead. That You remember that you're not the first person to encounter this and it's probably not even the first time that you've been through something really hard and then you move you find a target and you start moving to it and even when it's really dark and really hard you can say okay you know what I can't think about a year from now right now I got to think about can I get out of bed and put my pants on and make a cup of coffee today and maybe that's enough for today maybe I can make that progress and maybe the next day I can send a text message to my grown children and maybe the day after that I can think about how am I going to save my business here right so you, you start setting some targets and you start moving because movement produces changes in your neurochemical environment that start to produce better patterns that you wire in Hebb's law is a neuroscience law that says neurons that fire together wire together so you start making yourself do certain things and before long you start ingraining them into new patterns and new habits and you start finding your way towards a better future right and so that's what i mean by hope is a verb hope is an action word and you have to yeah. do something to find it and you can like everybody can no matter how whether your diagnosis is fatal or your business is flatlining or whatever you can find hope again and you can start moving towards something that's true and start recognizing that those thoughts that are negative aren't necessarily true and so you can deal with that why do i say hope is the first dose it's this like when you're when you guys were in your business troubles and you were super in debt and you were starting to think of what you were going to do, there probably came a moment when you knew that there was a plan that would probably deliver you from that trouble, right? There, there was a path that was possible. And for me in my practice, it's you can come in and tell me, you know, Linda, you can say, I've been having these headaches, doc, and we can do a scan and I can find a tumor, God forbid, and I can say, hey, I know how to fix that for you. Like, I can cure you of this, but you've got to get out of bed tomorrow and drive to the hospital, and you got to check in, and you got to get an IV, and you sign a consent form and go to the operating room, and then I can give you the plan. Then I can do the thing that's going to cure you. But right. before you do any of that, you have to have hope that that plan's going to work, mm. and you've got to do something to move towards it, Right. You yeah. can't just stay at home and hope that the surgery will happen miraculously, even though you're not in the hospital, because mm -hmm. it's not going to unless you put that thing in gear and move forward. And that's one of the things about your brain. When your brain's in trauma, especially complex grief, about 10 percent of people that are that are, that are bereaving or grieving someone or have lost someone or have gone through something major get stuck in this pattern that the researchers call complex grief. Complex grief is where you just can't move past it. You're ruminating on it. You're stuck in the past. You're feeling 
intense longing and, and yearning and, and grief over it, and you just can't move forward. And you know people like this, and everybody does. Is the people that are 20 years later, they're still stuck in the support group, and they're still just mourning and can't just can't move forward from the thing that okay. happened. And we know from brain imaging now that there's a part of your brain called the cingulate cortex. It's deep in your brain in the middle, and it sort of acts like the gear shift for your engagement of all the different parts of your brain. So thoughts get in there, and if you're stuck, it's like putting your car in neutral. If you're bereaved and you can't move on or you're so stressed out from this thing that's happened, you just can't move past it, and all your thoughts are circling around it, then they get stuck in the cingulate, and it's like they can't put the car in gear. It doesn't matter how hard you press the gas. It's not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. And so you what the researchers have figured out that study complex grief is that you can ch if you can change your thinking, like you can say, wait a minute, this this event happened and it's horrible, but there's still other things that are hopeful in my life. There's still other possibilities. There's still potential for it to be better because some other people have made it before mm -hmm. and other people have lost somebody and other people have become bankrupted and they've made it through. So you can, you can make that switch in your brain. It's like putting your car in gear and like you guys did with your debt, like you start making positive steps. That's why hope's the first dose because without hope, you're not going to put that car back in gear and you're not going to drive towards the plan that will get you out of that hole eventually. You're just not going to do it unless you have hope. All right. So I think I was reading – I don't know if I was reading this in the book or if it was a uh, video that I watched or another podcast I listened to of yours. But you were talking about how – and I, this is my layman's interpretation, so correct me from a medical <laughs> perspective on this. But what I took from it was when you have – a series of negative thoughts, um, if you don't bring them into check, they're just going to keep coming back. Almost like the the picture that I was drawing in my brain is like uh, a pickup truck driving through like wet, muddy grass, like swampy grass, where it like leaves these deep grooves that you just naturally just keep falling back into. Um, is there anything that's accurate about what I just said? <laughs> exactly. It's exactly accurate. You, you, we talked a while ago about Hebb's law, about this idea that neurons that fire together, wire together. Yeah. Synapses are the connections. There's 100 billion or so neurons, brain cells in your head, and they're surrounded by trillions of other cells. And those cells serve all kinds of supporting mechanisms. And between all those cells, there's these little wires, little connections are called synapses. And they are the way that multiple cells can kind of loop together into a network and start performing tasks. I'll give you a good example. When you, let's say you guys move your business to a new office, right? And the first few days that you drive to that new office, you've got to really think about it. Like you get, you put the thing in the mm -hmm. GPS and you pay attention to all the stop signs and the directions and you're really paying attention to the, to the road. And then after a couple of weeks, you just get up and get in your car and then you end up at the office and you don't even remember driving. You were like changing yeah. the station on the radio and talking about something and wondering what you're going to have for lunch. You don't remember all those turns because you have formed synapses in your brain that automated those turns and, and directional changes and stop signs and all that stuff that you had to do multiple times. You fired those neurons together so many times that you created that rut like you talked about, that groove that the wheel mm -hmm. can fall into easily. Mm -hmm. That's the problem with negative thinking, that the more you ruminate on a particular thought – or allow it to go unchallenged, the more you think about a certain set of things, then it turns into an automated negative behavior. So that if you, you're, you know, I'm sure Bob never gets on your nerves, Linda, but if, if he gets on your nerves once in a while, 
you start thinking the next time he wears that shirt that he's got on right now, the last time he wore it, he really irritated you. The next time you see that shirt, you're automatically in a bad mood. You can't really figure out why. And it's because you associated that shirt with that particular day when he irritated you in a certain way. And you, uh-huh. and you made a, a mental map that that was going to be another one of those days that irritated you. Right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a synapse. And so the problem with feelings is that feelings represent chemical events in your brain. They don't represent facts, but our entire sort of society right now, our entire culture is telling us that whatever you feel is your truth and you should grab it and run with it. That's it's true. You go for it. But the problem is from a neurochemistry standpoint, feelings are not in fact facts. They're just chemical events. Here's a good example of that. Let's say you open, where do y'all live? What city do you live in? Franklin, Tennessee. Tennessee, okay. There's black bears in Tennessee, right, in the hills. Let's say you open your garage tomorrow and there's a black bear in there, right? You're going to... It's going to be afraid. You're going to be scared because there's a bear in your garage. It's literally a threat to you, right? Right. Scary. But let's say later in the same day, the bear is gone now. You're safe. You go to bed that night. You hear a sound in the middle of the night. Your brain tells you... That bear is in your house and he's going to kill you, right? And the thing that you feel is exactly the same as when the bear was really there, except you turn the lights on and the bear's not there. It was just a noise, a wind blew on the shutter. But the chemical event in your brain that feels like fear that tells you that there's a real threat is the same chemical event that happens when there really is a real threat. And the reason for that is there's only seven or eight neurotransmitters that create the entire palette of human emotion, right? So that means that what you feel doesn't always tell you the truth. Wow. That's critically important in making good decisions for your life, especially when you've gone through massive things, because you're going to feel all kinds of stuff. Uh, you're going to think all kinds of things. Most of them are not true. Mm-hmm. Good example, like when you lose a child, guarantee you, because I'm, I'm an expert at losing a child, done it. You're going to think, I could have done something different. Maybe my son would still be alive. You know, what did I do wrong? Why wasn't I there? Why didn't it happen to me? I should have been the one to Mm -hmm. get, right? You are going to think those kinds of things. So you've got to learn then if you want to have a meaningful, purposeful life again, and even maybe approach something like happiness again, you've got to learn the ability to biopsy your thoughts, critically examine them before you react to them and decide if the feelings associated with those thoughts are true or not. Mm. There's a writer, um, named Le Guin, and she had this famous sign on her desk when she was writing, and she had three questions that she would ask herself of everything that she's writing. It turns out to be really good questions to ask if you're thinking. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it compassionate? Or is it harmful? And so think about your thoughts like that. Like, okay, this thought pops into your head. I am never going to succeed financially again because I really screwed this up and created all this debt, and I'm just, I might as well give up. Is it true? No. Is it true that I'm always going to be sad about my son dying? Yes. But is it true that I'm a, that means I'm a terrible dad and I shouldn't even try to parent my other kids or my grandkids? No, it's not true. That's not a true thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got to learn to identify the emotion associated with the automatic thought that you have. Recognize when it's untrue or harmful or not compassionate. And then make a decision to replace that harmful or uncompassionate or, or untrue thought with something that's actually going to help you move forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's how you start to get out of those ruts, Bob. That's yeah. how you start to drive in a different lane and start to make new patterns that are healthier. 
Yeah. And this is sounding a lot like taking every thought captive, you know, exactly, which we know from the word of God. And then also I was thinking about the renewing of our mind of like yep. constantly going back to the, the Bible to see what the word of God says about our situation, which is really interesting. Right. Cause, yeah. I mean, that, that, to me, sometimes that's the only way I can get out of a just, I mean, and I'm just talking on a small scale of just a negative cycle loop in my head of like, yeah, it's never going to get better. I, you know, I'm never going to get past this or whatever. Uh, sometimes the only thing I can do to pull myself out of that is just go straight to the word of God. And yep. that's exactly right. The the two scriptures you quoted, I talk about both of them later in the book, but but Second Corinthians 10, 5, Take every thought captive and make it conform to Christ. So mm -hmm. if you have a person who's never going to tell you a thought that isn't true, Jesus Christ, he's always going to tell you the truth. His yeah. word will always be true. And not a truth or your truth or my truth, but the truth. Yeah. It's always going to be true. Then if you take captive your thoughts and you submit the negative ones, the harmful ones to him and compare them to what's really true, then you can start to make real progress. And Romans 12, 2 is the self-brain surgery capital of the Bible. It's exactly that. Don't be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's two parts to that verse. So the conformed part is life is going to shape your neurons and life is going to create synapses for you and life is going to put you in ruts unless you do something about it because mm -hmm. that synaptic formation is happening all the time whether you're thinking about it or not it's happening it's happening by your experiences your thoughts your interactions with other people and your thoughts about the future that's what that's what makes synapses and a lot of that is passive based on what you've done always done before so unless you take those thoughts captive and make them submit to the truth then they're going to wire in in a five to one negative way and then you're just giving up that ground to your enemy whether you believe that's a literal satan who hates you and wants to steal kill and destroy your life like i do or if you think it's just the universe is doesn't care if you are happy or not and there's no meaning and purpose out there your brain's going to wire yourself towards that negative outcome whether you think it's an enemy or not so that's part of it the second part of romans 12 too so don't conform but be transformed that's the mind change part that's why i always tell my podcast well you can't change your life until you change your mind until you transform your mind and the back half of that verse is why so don't be conformed rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you'll be able to test what is his good pleasing and perfect will for your life mm -hmm. so that our problem is we don't test often enough we don't biopsy often enough mm. we just conform we just yeah. say well if i have financial problems i got to feel bad about that i need to be ashamed of it i don't want to get a financial advisor because i don't want to admit that i need help right i don't want to go to a support group after my son dies because i don't want anybody to know that i'm still grieving after two years and most people think i should only grieve for one year right mm. people, I, I don't want to tell people that I'm, i don't be vulnerable about it but instead you test it and you, I, you make it conform to his good and pleasing and perfect will for your life because the alternative is if you keep doing what you've been doing there's a reason why most people are chasing happiness in ways that we wouldn't define that as christians and they don't seem happy like there's not an amount of money that you'll finally get and say i'm done i've made enough money i'm happy yep. now right there's not enough likes on instagram that you'll finally say I've had enough likes. I've got enough followers. Everybody's chasing more because the thing that they're chasing doesn't actually make them happy. Yeah. And the reason it doesn't make them happy is it's not good, pleasing, and perfect in the context of what God really wants for you, which is always better. Yeah. 
That's so good. All right, this is so good. Uh, all right, I want to ask one last question, kind of, uh, you know, maybe rolling some of this up. But if you were observing someone who was going through a significant challenge, like I, I want to like imagine someone who it's like, all right, this person is doing it right. And again, like, I, and not, would, I don't want to try to make this too formulaic because I, I'm sure it's different for every what situation. What do you mean by this person is doing it right? Like, um, someone person who is coming them, through, working okay. through a challenge. Okay. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is what are, you know, by by contrast, we're talking about the person who maybe 20 years later still feels like they're stuck in that rut, mm-hmm. you know, versus someone who processes through the challenge at, whatever an appropriate amount of time is, you know, again, like not trying to, you know, quantify that in any way, but, but point but is who's moving through instead yeah, of saying someone stuck. who's yeah. moving through, right. um, what are the differentiating things between those two people? So if I'm that person, you're saying, Bob, yes, you're doing everything right. You're moving forward. What are the things that I'm doing? That's a, that's a good question. It's hard. Um, because everybody's different. But I think that the most important thing is to remember, Jesus said two things that are hard to square up on the surface. It seems like they're contradictory. He said in John sixteen thirty three, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going to have trouble. Mm-hmm. That's why I say the massive thing is inevitable. It's coming. He also said, though, in John ten ten, I came here so that you may have life and have it abundantly. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. the, Jesus said, it's going to be hard, but it can be abundant yeah. at the same time. And so I would say a a hallmark of someone who is on the path to hope or is embracing a hopeful lifestyle again, life pattern again, is the ability to say and instead of but. And what I mean by that is I lost my son, okay? Devastating, tragic. It'll never be okay. And I could easily have my life look like this. I could say, I was a happy guy, but my son died. Mm -hmm. I I was a faithful Christian, but my son died. I was okay, but my son died. I could be like that. And you know people like that. And I would say 20 years from now, if I'm still saying that, I'm not making good progress, right? But if you can learn how to say, I was a, I had a beautiful son, was brilliant, great musician, loved Jesus, brilliant kid, and he died. And I have a life that matters anyway. I have four other children and four grandchildren and I'm making a difference with my writing and my podcast and, and, and my son's life still matters because the pain that we experienced when we lost him is helping people now in a way that he would be really proud of. Mm-hmm. So I think if you can look at your life and say, I've embraced the fact that I, my massive thing was a thing that happened in my life, but it wasn't the thing that happened in my life. Mm. I was able to, to harness the hope enough to say this can't be the defining thing of my entire life because I'm still alive. And God said, Jesus said, I came here for you to have an abundant life. And that means that it can't be defined as tragic or all bad or wow. all hopeless because it's got to be abundant. And if Jesus is telling the truth, and I need him to be telling the truth because he also said that there's a resurrection, I get to see my son again. If that's not mm-hmm. true, then none of it's true, right? right? So so all of that to say that if you feel like you're able to put your massive trauma, tragedy, your massive thing in a place that's always devastating and always unacceptable it's never mm-hmm. acceptable right but it's one of the things that your whole life is made out of 
And if you can do what Isaiah 46 talks about, God says to the prophet, see, I have refined you, but not like silver is refined. I've refined you in the furnace of suffering. Hmm. And what I found, I was in this, I was in the furnace and it was burning me up. And I was saying to God, this doesn't feel like I'm being refined here. It feels like you're killing me. Hmm. And that's what it feels like at first. But what happens over time is you start finding parts of yourself that this massive thing has made better. Mm. That, that I'm, I'm better able now to empathize with my patients and walk alongside them instead of being this guy in the white coat. He comes and tells you the, the diagnosis and walks off. I'm, I'm now going to sit with you and cry with you and, and empathize with you and walk through it with you and understand that you're hurting. And I'm better because I've lost my son. And I'm better at articulating what I'm feeling so that there's somebody out there who might not be able to do that. They're chewing on something they can't quite identify and I give them some words and they say, Oh, now I get it. I understand now. Mm. And I, I can take hope from that. You're doing that with your financial ministry. You're giving people some tools and some words to say, Hey, I'm not, it's not hopeless. Maybe I can make it. Maybe I'm not just a bad person because I got myself in financial trouble. I've right. got a, I've got a hope. So I think that's the answer. Long answer. Make it, and and not but make it a thing and not the thing and that's not to trivialize it because it's a thing it's a massive thing that's why i called it that massive thing Mm -hmm. and i'll tell you one little story about our business i told you i was going to give you some business here we owned a private practice i was the only neurosurgeon for about a 200 mile circle my wife ran our office it was our whole family all of our kids worked in our practice at different points of our career and after mitch died it was a couple of months and we we just couldn't go i mean we we just were stuck and and the thought of going and taking care of somebody else and and trying to save another person was just impossible mm-hmm. but we had 10 employees and we were quickly coming to that point where it was like there's no cash flow like i'm i've got to go back to work or we're going to lose our business right we're going to miss payroll we're going to have to lay people off like we're the reality is like we got to go back to work mm-hmm. and we did. And we just went back to work and it was hard. It was terrible. But a year or so later, we, it was just like this one day when all of a sudden the lights came on and, and Lisa and I were like, you know what? We never missed payroll. Like we, we made it through that. We, wow. we we never had to lay anybody off. Like we, we didn't have to void any contracts or cancel any, any stuff. And, and we were able to maintain our lease and all of that stuff. And I found this verse. It was Psalm 126, I think 5 and 6. And it says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. And those who go out weeping, carrying seeds of sorrow will reap sheaves of joy. And and that's what God did. He kept his promise that if you can if you can face your massive thing and you can find when it's right and go back to work and keep doing the things you're called to do. Now you've got another job. Now you also have to carry this thing with you. You've also got to carry that sheaf of pain with you. But you keep doing the thing. There's going to come a day, friend, I promise you. There's going to come a day when his promises start becoming visibly true in your life. That Romans eight twenty eight promise comes when he says all things will work together for good. I started writing and, and podcasting and, and sending emails and, and trying to just communicate some of these things. And twice in the 10 years since our son died, somebody's written in and said, hey, Dr. Warren, Today was the day I was going to commit suicide, and I listened to your podcast, and I'm not going to now because you wow. gave me some hope. That's awesome. And so there's a there's an example, right, of some something that came out of losing my son that's good in somebody's life. It's not good. It never will be good that I lost my son, and I would trade it. I'm sorry. I would trade it right now to have him back. 
But God has shown me that, hey, you be faithful, you sow when you're crying, you'll eventually start reaping some joy again. It will come true, friend. He does long to be gracious to you. He will rise to show you compassion. He is close to the brokenhearted, and you can harvest that joy again someday. Wow. So good. Well, I think it's a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so anybody who's listening to this, and you're like, yes, this resonates with me. This is, um, yeah, I'm dealing with something. Go check out his book. Hope is the or first dose. If you know someone who's dealing with something, I yeah. think this is incredible advice for people who don't know what to say, <laughs> you know, Thank in you. those situations. And that is one of the reasons I'm really excited to, you know, continue reading this. the rest of this book is because there are those times when you see someone and you're like, do I say something? Do I say nothing? Do I, you know, you, you don't know what to do. And so, yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate you writing this book and, you know, just the the depth of knowledge that you have on several different fronts um, from, you know, just being a doctor and understanding what our, what our body is doing, you know, and, but also understanding it from having walked through it yourself, I think is extremely impactful and helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So anyway, everybody run out and get this book. Yes. Use it for yourself, get it for some other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said before, um, you're a fantastic writer. It you will. Um, it's not going to be an easy read, but um, it's going to be really beneficial for you. And um, yeah, yeah, go for get sure. it. Anyway, Doctor Lee Warren, thank you so much for coming to join us and sharing your wisdom on this today. Yeah, thank you. You guys are coming on my show in a couple of weeks. I too. can't I'm wait. Excited. We're excited. <laughs> We're pumped. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. We'll see you then. All right. We want to know if you've heard about our flagship class called True Financial Freedom. Yeah. And if you haven't, it's more than just a money class. Mm -hmm. It's really about fulfilling your God-given purpose, breaking free from hidden money beliefs and making a lasting impact. Yeah. And we've gotten feedback from students and they've said things like, it is the first class I've taken where at the end of each session, I felt equipped and not burdened. Yeah. And it's less theory and more realistic action steps and guidance. We've also heard it felt like a conversation with friends, which is awesome. Yeah, and it encouraged me in ways I didn't think I would ever experience. This class is on demand, and it's designed for churches and small groups as well as individuals. And you can get all the details at seedtime.com slash TFF.